This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. The results show that this district is demanding change. This is what this district has been waiting for. This is what this country has been waiting for. And we are all here now together. So I'm excited. I am happy. I am fired up. I cannot wait to get to Congress and cause problems. Jamal Bowman isn't your average middle school principal. That's because the 44-year-old recently beat veteran Congressman Elliot Engel in the Democratic primary in New York's 16th District. Engel, who chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee, has represented the Bronx and Westchester County-based seats since 1989. This race harked back to one of the biggest upsets of the 2018 election as well, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat veteran Congressman Joe Crowley in the nearby 14th District. Every single person here has worked their butt off to change the future of the Bronx and Queens. That's what I know. That's what I know. In both races, younger minority candidates tapped into a desire for change among the voters in their majority-minority districts, and they beat older white men, Engel and Crowley. Bowen is part of a generational change, too, that's happening not just in New York politics, but across the country, and it's happening at a time of extreme craziness and flux with the pandemic uh, and just a, a you know just a, a time of extreme change. Uh, with the nation looking uh, at his own history of racial injustice, also Bowman, who's black, was able to provide a bridge to the public with his own personal experiences with the police. Clyde McGrady, our own Clyde McGrady, spoke to Bowman recently about his campaign, what it was like growing up, what he tells his own children about social justice, and several other topics, uh, which we'll get into. Clyde, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks for having me back, man. It's 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 always a pleasure to to talk with you. So Jamal Bowman, like I don't think anybody in our newsroom had heard of him uh, until a few months ago. Um, you know, most uh, most politicians get reelected at a pretty good clip, and I think Elliot Engel, uh, after serving in his 16th term, probably thought he had a fairly easy path. And then all of a sudden, uh, we started hearing Jamal Bowman's name a little bit, uh, and and just I mean, his campaign kind of caught fire just at the right time. He had to wait a while because New York's uh, uh, mail, you know, balloting system was kind of crazy, but uh, he's got a double digit lead, you know, uh, and, and which is kind of tantamount to winning the district. So let's talk about your conversation with him. Um, I mean, he was like, as you said in your, uh, in your story, and I said at the top, he's this middle school principal who's like 44 years old and a dad, <laughs> and now he's going to be a congressman. <laughs> what was that like talking to him? Yeah, he's a he's a pretty fascinating guy, and you know the the thing that really strikes you is is how he can tie his personal story 
into what's happening in the country at the moment. Um, I don't know if a lot of people noticed this, but back in March, he wrote this opinion piece because Bloomberg had just entered the uh, the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Um, the former and, mayor of New York. Yeah, yeah, former mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg. And under Bloomberg's um, tenure, there was stop and frisk, which, you know, um, a lot of black and Latino men were disproportionately arrested and accosted by police. And given his own history, you know, uh, arrested and roughed up by police at, at the age of 11, he uh, was vehemently opposing Bloomberg. So that's kind of the first um, um, instance of him uh, just publicly personalizing his own backstory. But then, of course, there was the, the, the protests following the murder of George Floyd. This is law enforcement. They're supposed to protect us, not kill us. I just watched a video of the police in Minnesota having their knee on the back of this black man's neck until he was no longer moving and no longer responsive. And, you know, he ultimately died in police custody. And this stuff happens constantly, seems like every week. And and we wonder why black people don't trust this country and why black people don't trust law enforcement. And that's when his campaign really, you know, hit its stride. Um, He started getting more attention, uh, more uh, donations. Um, I think his, uh, the people that he wanted to reach really started paying attention and it was, you know, kind of off to the races. And that was around May 25th. Let's play this clip because he, you know, he, he just has this really, you know, I mean, it's sort of chilling the way that he describes just being like a kid and coming up against the police in New York. It's a long history, unfortunately, you know, it started, you know, when I was 11 years old, I think I was in sixth grade. And the police, you know, literally beat the crap out of me uh, just because I was uh, playing with my friends loud and boisterous and and didn't acquiesce to what they were asking us to do. Um, you know, I gave a little back talk when they when they told us to settle down or keep it down. And next thing you know, I was you know thrown against the wall, uh, thrown to the floor, nightstick to the back, face scraped ac- across the floor. And I handcuffed, um, only to be taken to the precinct and and ultimately released to my mom uh, without any charges, uh, you know, and and no recourse for me and my mom because we didn't even think about any recourse. We just kept it moving, you know, which is, you know, in retrospect, kind of a a way of life for people of color uh, in this country, unfortunately. You know, we just feel powerless against a system that you know, too often feels like it's designed to, to oppress us. Last time you were on political theater, you had uh, um, talked to three members of Congress, Will Hurd, Andre Carson, and uh, Cedric Richmond, about their experiences with the police and, you know, the way that they give the talk, you know, to their, their kids or the way they got the talk about, like, how to deal with police. And this was, um, this, like, you know, raised the ante, I feel like. I mean, this was, this was uh, I mean, uh, you know, those interviews were great, uh, but Bowman, like, 
he almost like he took it to another level, I think, with this. I mean, this is something that most people don't get to hear a lot of. Yeah. And one of the uh, kind of sad things about the interaction, he says that, you know, his parents didn't think to to raise a big deal of it. It was just the way things are. And as he said, they kept it moving. But ironically enough, um, he says he did not get the talk as a child, like from his parents. My parents didn't, didn't tell me anything. You know, I mean, their their general message was was stay out of trouble. You know, just just in general. I know his dad's from down south in Georgia, actually, but was not, I guess, kind of this city guy or whatever, and just did not see the police maybe as threatening as um, as someone who was who was born in a city. He was kind of this. Uh, preached this kind of racial conciliation uh, to Jamal. And so as a kid, maybe he didn't have that, um, I guess, that training that a a lot of black kids do. And he kind of mouthed off to a cop and, you know, the cop made him pay for it. Well, and I wonder too, like the, the, one of the things that's going on that's so, that just in the last you know, a few months and and couple of years too, uh, with with other you know like instances that we've seen between police and particularly you know like hurting or killing uh, unarmed black men, is people are are not accepting that this is okay anymore. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm I'm curious to see if there will be more Jamal Bowman types. You know, the, these people who can uh, uh, speak to racial justice and policing from a more uh, personal perspective, you know, I mean, look, there, there are a lot of issues that Congress has to deal with. Not all of them can be personalized. So sometimes they are more abstract for lawmakers. That doesn't mean that they don't care or, or show concern about it, but I think it is a little bit different when you, when you can personalize something. Um, so, so I'm very curious to see the type of politicians that, that follow this moment. Yeah, and you know one of the things that uh, that he he discussed also in your interview was the support that he got from people like Ayanna Presley and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You know, to receive calls from you know Camilla Jayapal, AOC, um, you know Barbara Lee, and others just was all surprising in a good way. And uh, yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy that people have made themselves available to, to help me go through this transition. You know, they are different kinds of members of Congress. They're they're not really content to kind of just be like, oh, I'm just going to wait my turn, you know, uh, on, on things about speaking up and so forth. And, you know, just on a non-policy level, you know, we recently saw uh, Ocasio-Cortez um, confronted by uh, Ted Yoho, uh, was called an expletive uh, on, on the, the House steps. And, and uh, you know, after this sort of like weird non-apology on the floor by Yoho, she addressed it. Representative Yoho decided to come to the floor of the House of Representatives and make excuses for his behavior. And that I could not let go. I could not allow my nieces, I could not allow the little girls that I go home to, I could not allow victims of verbal abuse and worse to see that to see that excuse and to see our Congress accept it as legitimate. 
And it's like it was to me, it was this extraordinary moment of like, no, we're not, we're not going to do this. We're not, <laughs> we're not going to pretend that this, th- these issues don't exist. And we're going to, and you know, Ocasio Cortez sort of confronted it like very, very openly. And Presley, you know, one of one of Ocasio Cortez's uh, closest friends and allies in the House. I mean, she, you know, Bowman recounts in your conversation uh, that about being people who are closest to pain need to be in power too. You know, not to jump off on a completely separate conversation, but it is interesting, this paradox that as the country and our politics kind of becomes more uh, polarized and partisan, um, party discipline uh, within Congress has kind of broken down, right? (laughs) And you have these freshmen who are finding ways to, uh, I guess, cultivate their own power bases. Now, AOC does that through social media, um, Mm -hmm. mostly. The fact that Ted Yoho is even responding to a freshman feels this threatened by a freshman member of Congress is just wild to even begin with. And, you know, we're talking about Jamal Bowman, who, you know, is most likely going to win that district and income, uh, you know, potential incoming freshman. It, It is a sign of the times that these, you know, young members can come in and have an impact at um, uh, at such an early stage of their career. And you you mentioned Ayanna Presley. Um, you know, she endorsed uh, Bowman during during the uh, primary, and she has a similar story to to Bowman. I think she knocked off Capuano. Yes, Mike Capuano, longtime member up in uh, Cambridge. Yeah. Yes, who was endorsed by some prominent members of the Congressional Black Caucus which is exactly what happened to Bowman. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the CBC's argument that if, okay, we want people who are already in Congress to work with us, we can't just abandon them if they, you know, if if they get a young black challenger, we have to to show members that we stand with them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is odd because now you have to welcome these members into the CBC and they don't necessarily have that much loyalty to you because you oppose them coming in so that'll also be um i guess the game within the game if you will of of, uh, political coalition building of how that works out the tension between some of maybe the younger members of the cpc versus the more um established members of the cbc but yeah it, it, it is fascinating to watch these these young freshmen have such an impact at such an early stage of their careers Let's let's talk about some of the other kind of more personal stuff with Bowman because mm-hmm. you you also you know I mean he's he's a dad he, he's got three kids um, and he he talked a little bit about kind of coming down to Washington and I don't know the, t- tell me about that because that, that that's you know politicians trot their kids out all the time um, <laughs> but as 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 props but this actually was like this did seem like just a a dad kind of, you know, talking about like his vacation and taking his kids to the King Memorial and so forth. You know, it's funny, you know, I've taken my, my family to DC, um, multiple times. Uh, and I've taken my students to DC as well. As a matter of fact, one of, one of my goals is my first year, my first year as principal of, of my middle school was to take our kids on a trip to DC at the end of the school year. You know, we were able to, to allocate the, the funds to do that. Just because it's just so much history, mm-hmm. you know, it's just so much history there. Not just the fact that many of the structures were built by slaves, but it's just you can almost 
you know, the, the American history there is palpable as you even, you know, go to the museums and observe the monuments and just walk around. So it's just, it's always been a special place uh, for me as a, as a parent and, and, and teacher and principal just to, you know, introduce my students and my kids to, you know, the MLK monument and now the, the African-American History Museum. Yeah, I just I just love experiencing history in that way, and I've done it with my family and, and, and students. So it's just, I mean, it's just again very humbling to to now that be my my workplace, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, yeah. in the next several months. How did it come up uh, with like the with the kids in your in your conversation with him? Yeah, he does give off real like cool Gen X dad uh, energy. You, you get those vibes. <laughs> Is that a thing? Like, cool, a Gen cool, X dad. Dad. <laughs> cool, cool Gen X dad. Cool Gen X dad energy. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing I just made up. Actually, <laughs> I'm gonna. But, I'm I mean, gonna... he was a principal, so yeah. you know, ostensibly he 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 is invested in like you know our youth. Yeah, but yeah, I because I wanted to you know we're heard on the hill, so we I was fascinated about. Uh, was he interested in interacting with the DC community? And that's when he brought up that he'd been down several times mm-hmm. and, you know, he is an educator and uh, they can be, you know, kind of nerdy about this stuff, right. About a town like DC. As so, a former yeah, educator, I, uh, yes, I, yeah. I can attest <laughs> to that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that, that large book uh, case behind you uh, points <laughs> out? I mean, yes. So he he was excited um, talking about you know showing showing off the history of DC for for his kids. Let's also I want to I want to get to the uh, talking about uh, another another one of the great uh, topics that you you brought up uh, that he was geeking out on, and that's his music uh, as a cool Gen X dad. Uh, <laughs> he is, uh, he definitely listens to the music of, of Gen X. Uh, and so we, we've got a, a clip on that. Is there a song or an album or artist that you, you kind of go back to? I know for me, like, again, being from Georgia, like Equimini is, you know, what I'll throw on when, you know, I just need album. some comfort. Yeah. Is is, is there a go-to for you? Uh, Man, that's a great question. So, uh, the entire Wu Tang catalog, mm-hmm. um, but particularly the Wu Tang Forever album, I can't even say that. You know, it would probably—I mean, Thirty Six Chambers was was quintessential. I mean, that was like a that was like a, a crucible moment in hip hop history. So maybe even Thirty Six Chambers more than Wu Tang Forever. So let me rephrase that. Um, Illmatic. Um, but Nas is, is, is another one. Um, Entertainment uh, by Karis One. Uh, by Boogie Down Production, excuse me. It Takes a Nation of Me and All This Back by Public Enemy. And uh, Paid in Full by Airbnb and Rakim. I know you asked for one, but awesome. you know my, my, stuff is, my stuff is always on shuffle and on rotation. So all of these sort of, sort of resonate for me. Wu Tang, <laughs> no, yes. like t- 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 talk a little bit about this, uh, Clyde, because you know you're you're a different different region and different generation of rap. Like, what does it uh, what does it tell you that uh, that he's uh, listening to Wu Tang Clan? Yeah, well, you know he's a he's a New York guy, so who kind of came of age in the late '80s to kind of mid '90s. So it's it's not a surprise what his musical taste is, but he was. Uh, 
famously photographed during the primary with a Wu-Tang uh, protective mask <laughs> on. So I didn't know he was in the Wu-Tang. And I asked him, you know, when you're down and out, you know, campaigns can be a grind. Like, what is the artist or song or album that you return to? And, you know, he said it was uh, Wu-Tang uh, 36 Chambers. I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to like talk to folks before they get too busy to talk to us on Capitol Hill, you know, sometimes. Uh, because I mean, like these, these interviews that we're, that you're doing, I mean, like, I do feel like you're getting a, you know, a very human like view of, of, of these people as, as people before they get totally indoctrinated into the political system where they become a little mm-hmm. more careful. Anything, anything else you want to, you know, bring up about your conversation with him before we start to wrap up? To kind of touch on what you mentioned, it is fascinating to, you know, before people get to Congress, you know, I don't think you can really know what it's like until you are in that system. And even, you know, I've recently previewed the documentary, The Swamp, um, which heavily features, you know, Matt Gates and, and Thomas Massey. But, you know, I don't think they, like, those guys realize, you know, there's there's a scene where Matt Gates is talking about he's getting hit up for party dues. And I think AOC has talked about this as well, like the grinding pressure t- to make money, right, to constantly be raising funds. So, you know, you come here with this idealism about how, how the world works. And, you know, he's 44 years old, so I'm sure he understands that coalition building comes with compromises but i don't think you realize how much compromise is involved in you know making the proverbial sausage until you get here so it is interesting to see you know how members perspectives may shift um as they you know move along in in their careers so it's kind of good to to get a good marker down for for what their mentality and their mindset was coming in. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and, uh, you know, I, I would, I would say that, you know, again, maybe I'm just, uh, biased because I also come from an educational background, was a teacher and, and my mom was a teacher and several members of the family teacher. If you can navigate the politics of a middle school, uh, <laughs> you're, you've got a, a, a slight edge, I think, <laughs> than, than, uh, a lot, a lot of people coming into the, to the situation, uh, uh, you know, sort of, rather unexpectedly so um, yeah well I, I brought it up to him that my my dad was actually a middle school principal was my middle school principal so he was he was like oh yeah that's that's dope man i was like no it was not dope <laughs> at the time it was terrible it was terrible <laughs> it was terrible i hated it my my mom uh, taught at the it was a junior high uh at the junior high that i went to and um that was that was tough. I didn't have to take her classes; like we avoided that. Uh, but it was yeah. My uh, mom taught at my tough. high school also, and I refused to take her class. Probably why I'm 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 no good at accounting right now is because <laughs> I didn't take her class. But <laughs> well, Clyde, thanks uh, thanks again for for talking about your interview. Um, I look forward to the next. Uh, you know, the, no no pressure, uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I look forward to the next awesome interview um, and. Uh, I, uh, you know, stay safe out there. Look forward to seeing you in person again, eventually. (laughs) You too, buddy. 